Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by the writer Neil Broadfoot who has written six novels to date, three in his Doug McGregor series and three in his Connor Fraser series and a seventh novel will be on its way before too long. Neil's debut, Falling Fast, came out in 2014 and introduced the world to Edinburgh investigative journalist Doug McGregor. It was shortlisted for both the Dundee International Prize and the prestigious Deanston Scottish Crime Book of the Year Award. He followed that up with The Storm and All the Devils. His first Connor Fraser novel, No Man's Land, came out in 2018, and he followed that up with No Place to Die and, most recently, The Point of No Return. Before writing fiction, Neil worked as a journalist for 15 years at both national and local newspapers before he moved into communications, providing media relations advice for a variety of organisations in the public and private sectors. Neil, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thank you very much, sir. How are you doing? I'm very good. Now, the first thing, and you and I were chatting just before we started recording, is that is it's going to be, I suppose, seven books in seven years. That and yep. anybody's book is an impressive, uh, a prodigious uh, amount of uh, output. Yeah, thanks. It, it helps having a contract that says that you have to deliver books on a certain timeline. That kind of focuses the mind. But as you said in your intro, I was a journalist for 15, 16 years. So producing copy on a daily basis was my bread and butter. So it's a kind of, it's just producing different types of copy now instead. Does that, funny, I was going to ask you that, actually, given the fact of, of your journalistic background, does it really help you having deadlines effectively that if you've got a contract and you've got to de- deliver a book, is that better than just writing something where you're not quite sure when you have to finish it? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've delivered the next book now, so I can admit this publicly. My publisher won't come looking for my head, um, but I, I need a deadline. I'm, I spent, as I say, I'm trained to hit deadlines. I'm told you need to produce X amount of copy in the next 20 minutes, you need to sub these four pages in the next five minutes or whatever it might be. So I'm very deadline focused and having that clarity of something, you know, a a deadline to hit and a point that you've got to deliver something really helps. It also stops for me anyway. It's very useful in the point of it gives you a point where you have to give the book that you've been working on, on your own over to somebody else. So I find that really useful as well. So I've, I've spoken to other journalists before, and I think, obviously, that idea of deadlines and you have to produce the copy, but you're also used to your copy yeah. being edited. And I think sometimes for writers that have maybe yeah. not had that experience, that can be quite difficult when somebody sometimes maybe puts a red pen or big question marks, but that's part of the discipline of journalism, that you know that somebody somewhere is going to say, no, I don't like that, or I'm going to rewrite that. It is, yeah. And um, a pal of mine, Bob McDevitt, who runs I Write in Bloody Scotland, we were having a conversation years ago and he said that good editing isn't done by diktat, it's a conversation. Because what an editor does is they take something that you've been looking at and you've been focused on in your head for months and they push it away from you a bit and give you a bigger picture of it. 
and say, have you thought about this? What about this? What about that? And I suppose the benefit of journalism, because I was a sub-editor, which basically is an editor, and a journalist, so I've done it from both sides. And what that's done, that training has done, is taken the ego out of it for me. Because it's a job, I understand that it is a job. And this is a lot more polite than some newsroom editing that you would get. <laughs> where certain sub-editors, chief subs, would scream across the newsroom about your effing copy and what the hell is this? And have you actually read this headline or are you drunk and that type of thing? So, Do you enjoy that editing process as a writer now when, when somebody somebody's going through your copy? Um, yes and no. I, I enjoy the editing process because it means that the book is complete and it's that next step. Well, not complete, but the manuscript, the story's complete and the next step of the journey can be taken. And I understand that it's the next step of the journey to try and make the book as much, or sorry, as good as it can be. There are things where, you know, you can have frustrations where you've got a certain style and an editor will say, no, 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 do this, do that. But that, again, that's part of the conversation. If you explain it, no, I'm doing this because of this, then they understand it and then it's okay. So yeah, it's a conversation and it's part of the job. I mentioned that you've got two kind of almost concurrent series. Is one the, the, the Doug McGregor series, one the Connor Fraser series. Book seven, yeah. Uh, is that which character is that going to involve? Well, actually, Connor's uh, it's a Connor Fraser book, but there are a few well kent faces from Edinburgh that suddenly pop up, and I didn't know that was going to happen until I was writing the book, and then suddenly this character from Doug and Susie's world ambled along tapped me on the shoulder and said, right, okay, I'm going in this. And off we went from there. That would be quite nice, actually, for, for readers, especially if, you, if some of them maybe don't realise and are thinking, wait a minute, go back to the start and say, wait a minute, who, who am I reading about here? It is, because I have been getting a lot of, because basically what happened was I wrote the first three um, Doug and Susie books originally for Contraband. And then I moved to uh, my current publisher with the Connor books, and I went from went from there. But I kept on getting asked by readers, where's Doug and Susie? What happens next? Are you bringing them back? So I don't know whether that was playing on my subconscious when I decided to do this. But, you know, so they are coming back. They will have their own books, but somebody, and I'm not saying who yet, has met Connor Fraser now. Excellent. So anybody listening is just going to have to wait and then buy the book to find out? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned in the introduction that your your first book, Fallen Fast, came out in 2014 and was really well-received. And I'm guessing it had been a long-held ambition of yours to become a novelist. And what was that feeling like when you, you get your first book published? This is all I've ever wanted to do. I became a journalist because I wanted to work with words while I was trying to you know, get a, become a published novelist. The reason that Fallen Fast was so special was the reason I wanted to be a published writer was I promised my grand that I would dedicate a book to her. And my grand was a huge influence on me as a reader. You know, as a writer growing up, she was the one that always encouraged me. You know, I remember sitting on a knee and reading Batman comics and learning how to read that way um, when I was a kid. And I always said to her, I'll dedicate a book to you. And I never managed to do it while she was here. So to finally get there and fulfill that promise and for the book to be so well received was brilliant. It was just, you know, it was a really, really special thing. Because I always think it's... Sometimes it strikes me, you know, when, when people write their first book, quite often the conversations of what they say is quite similar to when you hear like musicians talking about their first album. 
it's a long-held ambition, but as you say, it's maybe yeah. then an acknowledgement of the journey that you've got to get to that point. As in, oh, agreed completely, yeah. Yeah, the people that have maybe helped you along the way. Oh, God, yeah, without a doubt. That's what drove me. You know, when it could have been, because I was working stupid hours at the Scotsman at the time. So it would have been that I'd just moved flat, newly married, blah, blah, blah. And it would have been the easiest thing in the world to come home after a shift and go, nah, I'm not doing this tonight. But because I had that drive to fill that promise, that kept me going and that pushed me through. Without my grand's influence or without my grand's inspiration, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. And then obviously having you know, published the first one, that just sets you on that road. In terms of, you know, again, just keeping up this tenuous comparison with musicians, how was the difficult second album stroke book for you? Um, I don't remember writing the storm. I honestly don't, because um, Falling Fast came out and, as you said, it got two award nominations. It got a bit of critical acclaim. Uh, some writers were really, really nice about it. Some writers that I really respect were really nice about it. And my publisher sat there and when the dust had settled, they said, yeah, well done, do it again. Now, the problem by that point was when I came to write in the storm, I was working for the Scottish government by that point. I was working on the independence referendum communications. I was working on the Commonwealth Games communications. My wife was pregnant and had the most appalling morning sickness on the planet. So I was trying to juggle all this and trying to write a book at the same time. And there are chunks of that book to this day I cannot remember writing. People will come up to me and go, that bit in the storm where you do this, that, and Doug goes here and this happens. And I'll just look at them and smile and nod and go, thank you very much. And then I'll go and find a copy of the book and flick through and go, oh, I did do that. Because I do not remember writing that book at all. I mean, that's incredible. That I mean, as you mentioned, just the, the, the workload, which again, I think people sometimes, mm. you know, for a lot of writers, because you, you're obviously having to do it around other personal, professional things, you, you have to have that drive because... As you say, it would be the easiest thing in the world either to, to sleep longer in the morning or, you know, just watch your TV at night. And if you don't have that desire to write, you'll park it eventually. It has to be. It's been said that writing is a thing of obsession. That it's, it's either in you to do it or not. And I, I tend to agree with that because I always joke that it's a job that never feels like work, but it is a job at the end of the day. But there's something that, you know, I've always written. I've always had that desire to try and form what I'm seeing in the world into the written word and stick it on a page. And if you don't have that love of books and love of reading and that desire to do that, you will quit because it is a hard road and it is a very, you know, I'm not trying to say poor me. I'm the luckiest guy in the world with the job that I've got. But it can be a lonely thing of sitting on your own and trying to put down what you're seeing in your head down on a page when your pals are out at the pub or your wife's saying, let's go out for dinner or the next door neighbor saying, let's have a drink. And you're saying, no, I can't do that because I'm doing this. So it can be that. But again, it's a job and it's a passion and you do it. I know that, uh, you know, one of the recent guests in the podcast, Gordon Brown, who uh-huh. I, I know you know, and what, what yeah. impressed me when I was talking to him and he was talking about the kind of word count, he was setting himself and getting up at kind of half five in the morning and starting his day and, and it was the discipline of that which really impressed me that you know it's obviously something that he loves doing but at the same time mm. he knew that physically he just had to sit down and do it and I think that's maybe what separates people like yourself and, and him who get published and are publishing regularly from from other people who maybe have that ambition but maybe not the, the yeah. same drive. 
it is like that old saying, isn't it? There's a million people out there who are saying, I'm writing a book. And they might think that writing a book is doodling two words and then fiddling them for the next five months. It's not. You're never going to write a book until you, I think, I think it was Stephen King who said he realised that he had, to, he had to stop mucking around, get the bulldozer out and dig something big out of the ground for his first book. And it is that, that you're, you know, you can dick around, excuse my language, with the first five chapters until it's perfect and then you'll move forward. Or you can actually sit down, do the hard graft, as Gordon says, get the word count out, get a draft, as imperfect as it might be. And then once you can say, I have written a book, then you can go and edit a book and then you can do the real work to get a finished book at the end of it. Because I was listening to someone else recently and I've mentioned this, that it was a, a writer who, and she gave this brilliant advice. And it was that, first of all, if you, the first thing you should do and her advice was, you just mentioned it there, finish a draft. Because as soon as you've got a first yeah, draft, you've got something to work on. The other thing she said was, if you finish that first draft, you've got further than most people have because you've physically got a finished, it's not the finished article, but it's a it's a manuscript. And that's further yeah, exactly. on than a lot of people. It's the old saying of, you can edit 500 words of crap. You can't edit 500 words that you've not written. And it is that war of attrition. Writing isn't a sprint. It's not this, the creative news has hit me and I'm going to sit down and do it now. It's not, it's a long slog. Because if a normal book's 100,000 words and you're writing 2,500 words a day, although it'll get bigger, or sorry, for me, the word counts get larger the closer I get to the end of the book, usually because I'm figuring it out at that point and I've got a vague idea of what's going on. But it takes time and it does take repetitive discipline to sit yourself down. Don't get me wrong, I'm the world's worst procrastinator. You can tell when a new book's due because the house gets very clean, the dogs are never wet or walked. <laughs> all those little DIY chores that I couldn't do suddenly are the most important thing on the planet. But there comes a point where you have to stop mucking around, plant yourself in front of the laptop and get going. And do you have a, a discipline, you know, when you are getting close to that deadline, do you, is there a certain time of the day or night that you're writing or do you set yourself a certain word count every day? I mean, I ascribe to the same, I read the same book that Gordon read, which was Stephen King's own writing, which advocates that he wrote 2,000 words a day. And then I said, right, okay, well, I'm going to write 2,000 words a day. I tend to find that I work better later in the day because I used to night edit on newspapers, which is basically my day would start at three o'clock and I would get the next day's edition of the newspaper, the first four editions out from three o'clock to 12, one, whatever it might be that I was working till. Um, so I tend to find that my brain, because I've worked that way for so long, my brain switches on more at night. But, you know, I'll write when I can, because sometimes before the pandemic hit, when I was doing comms jobs, I was away, I was, you know, working away in Glasgow, or I was working down in London, or Cardiff, or Belfast. So I'd find myself sitting in hotel rooms, cracking out the words, and doing the job. So there's no really any time, it's just that discipline of getting the momentum started. I think one of the things is that when you get more into a book, when you've got a certain, you know, when you hit the first 10,000 words, you're like, right, okay, this is working. And then it's like that snowball going down the hill. It's a cumulative thing. So the more that you've got, the more you want to go back to it and the more you want to get to the story and know what's going on next. You mentioned, and again, you're not the first person to mention Stephen King's on writing book, which I think for anybody who, who wants to, to write, because you're learning from somebody who, who is one of the best, who knows what he, knows yeah, how to tell a story, great. knows how to sell a book, but the book itself is absolutely brilliant. 
It is. It's, it's superb. And it's, the thing is, it breaks it down and it, it shows clearly his love of the craft and his desire to do it. But it also shows, as we've said, that it is a job that you have to, I think he uses the analogy, you have to add the tools to your toolkit by doing the work, doing the reading. And that's not hard work to do for people who love the written word, but you've got to do that. And I think he does a very good job of balancing the love of the work with the fact that it is work at the end of the day. Because two of the things, uh, and I get it fits in nicely with this podcast, is he obviously says the two bits of advice you need to write, but you also need to read as well, uh, which yes. obviously for the Read All About It podcast is, is absolutely perfect. So in that vein, if I can take you to the first of your, your five book choices, in the yeah. podcast, and that is your favourite book from childhood. And the book that you've, well, one of the books that you mentioned, you mentioned a couple of authors, but the book was The Monster at the End of This Book, uh, starring lovable, furry old Grover. And it's one of the, the books from Sesame Street by, by John Stone, who I think was one of the writers and producers on, on the show. I wasn't familiar with the book, but when I looked it up, I love the idea of it. Oh, it's brilliant. I can't remember the exact origins because I was very, very young. I can't remember the exact origins of how I got it. I think my gran gave it to me or my mum and dad did. Or, anyway, it was a present. And obviously, it's just this cardboard, like, you know, A5 maybe book, big, thick cardboard pages as a kid's book would be. And it's basically Grover says, you know, every, every double page is a spread and it's artwork of Grover's really worried that he's been told there's a monster at the end of the book. He's got to stop you from getting to the end of the book. So he does all these strange things, like he boards up the page so you can't turn the page. And obviously you turn the page and there's Grover in a, a mess that you've created. And he ties it up with ropes and you open it up and says, well, you're very strong, you know that. And he cements up and he puts a brick wall in whatever. There's a monster, please don't. And he's getting incre you know, increasingly worried as you go through the book. And at the end, well, I'll no spoil it for the reader, but there is a monster at the end of the book. But I, used, I just loved that. The story of it, I mean, yeah, I was very young, but the story of the impending danger and getting to the end of it and the increasingly ludicrous ways he used to try and stop you, which is brilliant. Yeah, I just thought it was, it's, it seems, when you read it, you think, that's such a simple idea, but it's so brilliant. And then you, you try and think how that must engage children because you're actually, it's almost like you say, don't read the book, but as soon as you say that as a kid, you're like, no, well, I need to exactly. read, I need to read. I, I mentioned you, you'd also mentioned, obviously you were a, a sort of voracious reader when you were younger. Aye. All the Roald Dahl books. And then you also mentioned you progressed on to Arthur Conan Doyle, but you mentioned already of the influence of your gran. I take mm -hmm. it books were always just part of, as soon as you could read, that was you, you were, you were on your way. Yeah, that was it. I mean, I was always encouraged to read by my gran, my mum and my dad. You mentioned the Roald Dahl books. My mum got me a, the complete set of Roald Dahl and this kind of illustrated cardboard, like a collector's set of those and I tore my way through them. And so, you know, books were a constant thing. Um, and my grand was a big reader as well. So she kind of fostered that. And like I say, when I was a kid for enjoyment, not for, I mean, she was teaching me by proxy, but I remember sitting on her knee reading Batman comics, the old 1950s one. And she would spell the words out for me. And I remember learning to read that way and being transfixed by that. So yeah, books have always been a massive part of my life ever since I learned to read and understood what they were. And was there a point, even at that early age, where, which again, I've, I've heard other people saying where, you know, you learn to read, you, you get that love of reading, but then for mm -hmm. some people, you then also at the same time want to write your own stories because you just, there's something magical about what you're reading on the page and you think, I want to do that as well. 
the thing is, I always remember telling myself stories and writing stories in my head. But I can remember clearly the day that everything kind of clicked into position was we were in primary school and we had those really crappy, you know, the scalded pink jotters with the cardboard, the scalded pink cardboard covers the wrap rounds, right? Yeah. And it was just a plain A4 notepad, which was bad for me because being left-handed, all my writing went straight down the hill. So the lines were all diagonals. But our teacher gave us them and said, right, this is your book for writing your stories in because it's story time. The stories don't have to all start with Once Upon a Time and they don't all have to end with and they all lived happily ever after. And the moment I got that, that was me. I was away. Now that got me into trouble in school because it was story time's over now, but I've not finished the story yet. Story time's over, put your story away now. But the story's not, and there was a lot of, a lot of tense phone calls between the teachers and my mum and dad. Let's just leave it at that. But I always wanted to do it. But I remember clearly always the moment I had that magic thing of, ah, pencil meets paper equals this. I don't have to keep all this in my head now. I can put it down here. Let's go. And also just even that, the teachers, as you say, almost like saying, don't follow the formula of maybe the kind of fairy tales that you're told. Use your imagination. And that's a brilliant thing to tell children. Oh, without a doubt. I was really lucky there was that. And then when I was in high school, like a lot of writers, I had a brilliant English teacher called Mr. Robertson who instilled a very early love of Shakespeare that remains. But he had a real, again, what we were talking about, he had a real passion for the subject and he was interested in the mechanics of storytelling and stuff. So you got a real well-rounded, not only the here's, what would it be, a tale of two cities or whatever as we were, we were studying, but here's what you're studying and here's why it's important for that time. So he was brilliant and that just kind of deepened my love for it even more. Because I always wonder as well, and it's something particularly either in this, this category or the next one, the teenage sort of student books. And I think particularly for maybe teenage boys, because quite often there's that danger that they maybe drop off in terms of their reading. That's maybe when teachers, yeah. English teachers are so crucial because I was the same when I was in fifth year. I read a great teacher and he gave his catch 22 that engaged yeah. a whole class of 15 year olds. And it was, I thought it was genius what he did. I agree completely that a teacher can either nourish that ambition and that love, or they can kill it stone dead. I'll give you an example that um, I loved history um, for the first three years of high school. I loved it because of the stories behind it. You know, the stories of the big battles, the stories of this person dies, so this happens, that happens, et cetera, et cetera. Loved it. And then in fourth year, we got this history teacher called Mr. Wood, and he broke history down to flowcharts. And he insisted that everybody write them down as this happens, then this follows, then this follows, then this follows. And it was, it killed the narrative completely. And I remember going from being somebody who loved history to going, can I get out of this class faster? Because he's killed it. And so, you know, it, it can be that either formative experience or it can kill its own dead if you get a bad teacher. I think it's similar to, and I've said this before, I think sometimes when you read books, you can tell that the author has absolutely loved writing the book. And actually, you know, that yeah, idea of yeah. write the books you want to read yourself. And, and that comes across. And it's the same with teaching. You, teachers who love the subject, yeah. so they bring it alive. And, and other right. teachers who are maybe going through the motions, they're not enjoying it. So you, obviously, you're not going to enjoy it. Exactly that. Exactly that. Couldn't agree more. On that point, then, I take it when it came to you writing your own books, was that, was that part of the motivation? You wanted, It was the kind of book that you and the story you wanted to tell, but the kind of book that you would have read or you wanted to read? 
I wish I could say I was that organised, but no, <laughs> that question. I didn't know what I had. As I said, I had this promise that I'd made to my grand. Life got in the way and I forgot about it. Well, I didn't forget about it, but, you know, life got in the way. Something reminded me of her. We, we were watching an old family video and it was of us all at a barbecue. And I remember watching it and I realised I'd forgotten the sound of my grand's voice while watching this. And I don't know what that did to me, but it switched something on that said, I am now going to write a bloody novel. I am going to get it published and I am going to dedicate it to it. But I was doing these shifts at the Scotsman. I was storming around Edinburgh on my lunch break one day. And I looked up at the Scott Monument, beautiful sunny day, and being in the mood that I am, and the person that I am, I thought, I'm going to throw somebody off the top of that. And see what happened. So I wrote the intro, and I wrote it, and I didn't know what I had, because I don't plan books. I just take an idea, take an image, take a line, and run with it and see where it goes, and hope for the best. And that's all I had, but I kept on adding to it, and it was only when I'd written the 80,000 words that was the first draft of Falling Fast, I understood, okay, I've got a crime novel here. But I didn't know what I had when I started because I had no plan for it. And I don't to this day. But I think hopefully, because I'm writing at a pretty fast pace, because I'm trying to figure out the story along with the reader, hopefully that pace and that enthusiasm for the story comes across in the prose and gives the reader a more enjoyable experience. Because I'm always impressed, you know, with people who write like that, where, you know, anytime I've written anything, I always, I'm quite... I need to do a lot of planning beforehand in my head so I kind of don't get lost halfway through. So I'm always impressed if you just, as you say, maybe take an image or an idea and then you don't know what's happening until it's happened. Yeah. It's not the most restive way of working. It's not very relaxing when you hit something and go, right, how do I, I've done this. For example, the, one, the next one that's coming out in November, um, No Quarter Given, there's a locked room mystery in it, uh, which is, you know, the, somebody's found floating in a swimming pool in a locked room in a secure area. So there's no sign of the murder weapon. There's no sign of the murderer. There's no forced entry. Trying to sit down and work that out was not the most restive way of doing it and try to figure out why, you know, somebody's killed somebody in chapter three or why somebody's fallen off the top of the Scott Monument. But that's the way I've got to work. My agent asked me for a step outline of an idea I've had for a standalone. And it was the most excruciating thing I've ever had to write could try to plan the book before I was actually writing it, was just a nightmare for me. If I can take you on uh, then to your, your favourite book from kind of teenage formative years, we've mentioned them already uh, a couple of times in the podcast, and that's, you mentioned uh, Stephen King as obviously something that's been important to you in terms of your, your writing, but obviously yeah. your reading development in, as well. I've always loved Stephen King's work, but this started early on. I was in the school library and... I was getting bored with the bill of fare that was being offered, let's put it that way. Because it was the same, you know, it was the same kid-lit stories that I was bored of. And Stephen King in school had a very bad boy reputation. He was looked down at by the teachers. He was sneered at as a pulp writer. You weren't allowed to do book reports on any of his books. And his books would sit for the older kids only in a wee section of the library all of its own. You can imagine Stephen King, it would be low lighting and maybe there'd be something just lurking around the corner just out of sight. But by various methods, I took a quote on loan, end quote, the librarian's copy of Carrie. And I read it and it just got me by the throat from the first because it's not a perfect book. But as we were talking about, you can feel 
the passion and the heat of the story and King trying to tell this story. And as the story goes, he jumped the book and his wife fished it out of the bin and said, no, you've got something here, finish it. He did, and you can tell that it's a young writer trying to find his way, trying to develop something, but it's got pace, it's got suspense, it's got a brilliant idea in it at its core. You know, it's got well-formed characters. So there was something about that that made me think, right, if you can marry that with good pace, good characters, a wee bit of horror, a wee bit of suspense, what can you do with this? And that started me on my journey with Stephen King, who, you know, he's a very visceral writer. If you read some of the stuff in It or The Dead Zone or Misery, and it'll make you wince and flinch away from each. But the fact that you can have that visceral impact for me, and that was something that I wanted to emulate. In terms of success as a, as a writer, it, it's extraordinary what he's done. And yeah. maybe kind of touching what you were saying, it's sometimes, although he's, he's published so many books, he's sold hundreds of millions of copies, sometimes it's, it can be dismissed. But I think that kind of underestimates the power of his storytelling, I think. Oh, agreed. I mean, I wouldn't say he's the perfect writer. And, you know, obviously there are some things that are problematic. But his love and passion to tell a story and his ability to create a world. I mean, if you look at it, you know, when he creates Derry and he creates his version of Maine and he develops all that, or when he does Castle Rock with Needful Things and a couple of other books, you know, when he does Misery and he creates these worlds. And I think he's, his ability to do that and draw you into it, because they're not small, read Stephen King books. You know, and the fact that he keeps you coming back to them is a testament to his ability to tell a bloody good story and keep you involved and invested in that story. Because I always think, you know, when the likes of, if you read The Stand or even Under the Dome, they're massive books with a massive cast of characters. And there's only certain writers who could probably cope with that many characters and not exactly. either get bogged down in them or lose the reader because the reader after a point is going, who on earth am I reading about? But yeah, exactly that. that. Exactly that, and that's the real skill. But then he's been at his craft for, what, 50 years now? And he yeah. is still the master of it when it comes to it. He, you know, he is the man who sits down every day, batters the words out, and tells the stories. And fair play to him for that, and good on him. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddehy, and my guest, Neil Broadfoot. And Neil, we're on to your third book choice. That is a book that you would recommend to anyone. You chose a, a couple of books. The first of those would be William McIlvany's Laidlaw. Yeah, I mean, you can't talk about crime fiction. You can't talk about Scottish fiction or the art of writing without talking about uh, William McIlvany. Laidlaw, obviously set the blueprint for the tartan war, as they call it, genre. But the beautiful thing about Laidlaw is the prose is just so eloquent and spare. You know, he, he uses a couple of sentences and he'll describe a scene beautifully. The, the thing about Laidlaw is the crime itself in Laidlaw isn't that complicated, but you find yourself reading it for the evocation of this guy Laidlaw who's trying to work the world out. And he doesn't particularly like what he sees. But that's the beauty of, you know, McIlvany's work is that it is so lyrical and sparse and immersive that it really shows you, it shows you that a crime novel isn't just a pulp whodunit story. It can go somewhere else and it can be more. 
and the characterization it is just remarkable. It's a book that you know if you've not read it, read it. If you've read it, reread it. Reread all three of them because they're brilliant. My favourite line in a in a book opening line is the first line in the, of the papers of Tony Veach. It was it was uh, Glasgow on a Friday night, the city of the stair. And to be honest, I could have finished the book. I just thought that is perfect. I mean, yeah. that one line, it's just, it is perfection. And that's the thing. That was Romako Vani's real talent was you could boil everything down to a sentence or a paragraph and you were there, you were in it, you were away. And that's the hallmark of an absolute master writer. Yeah, and I think it was more than I've always felt that. But so there's Laid Law, the papers of Tony Veach, and Strange Loyalties is the is the trilogy with Laid Law. But you you mentioned it already yeah. it's more than just a crime book. It's it's the character engaged in, but the quality of the writing, the crime is almost incidental to it's a, it's a yes. character study of a, exactly. A it's a study of the city, the man, and how the two interplay with each other almost. And that's the genius of it. And as you say, the crimes are very simple. They're not, you know, it's not this intricate, very tricksy, high concept crime thriller. But it's the, you go back, or at least I go back to it, for the man and the evocation of the place that he's around and how those two interplay of how he affects the city by what he does and how the city affects him by its, you know, by the way that it lives and the way that it makes you live and it it makes him become because sometimes i think you hear writers being interviewed or, or people talking about books and they'll talk sometimes about a city and a place being a character i, I think Lady law was one of the first books that i read but i kind of got what that meant i would agree with that completely yeah i would say so that you know glasgow and or McIlvany's glasgow is a character unique and of its own and i would say it's not just a supporting character but it is to my reading, there is that kind of duality between there's the interplay between Laidlaw and the city and city and Laidlaw. I saw him in passing at Bobby Scotland and stuff, but I never actually got to meet him, which was a shame. Well, I've met his son who's following his footsteps, Liam. Met Liam a few times, and he's a nice guy and he's a great writer as well. What's your thinking? Are you, are you excited at the prospect of the book coming out in September? Ian Rankin uh, writing the, the, the last Laidlaw book, The Dark oh, Remains? Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I might have that on pre-order. I might have hustled my publisher for an early copy if I can. And if Ian is listening to this, you know. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to seeing what Ian does with that. I mean, I think it's a... I mean, Ian, Ian in his own right is a, is a great writer and a really successful writer. I still think it's a really brave thing to do, to oh, God, yeah. to, to take yeah. a character that, as you mentioned, is just is front and centre of that kind of so-called tartan noir, the real the yeah. kind of burgeoning Scottish crime scene. A lot of it goes back to him, and Ian's taking that character on. Oh, yeah, it's a very brave act, but, you know, I've got no doubt he'll do it. But, yeah, big shoes to fill. The other book you mentioned, and it's another writer who's been a recent guest on the, the podcast, Craig Russell, yeah. uh, who was a brilliant guest on, on the programme. It was brilliant yeah. talking to him. The book that you mentioned of his, and you're not the first person to, to mention this book, The Ghosts of Altona. I yeah. think Douglas Skelton was raving about it as well, and it was a kind of, like you said, I think, in your correspondence with me, you should yeah. just read this book. Aye, it, it, it's another one of those books where it's the crime novel, but it's not a crime novel. It gives you so much more. Craig's a lovely guy and he's a hugely talented writer. And I could have put five or six of his books on this list. Um, there is another one I want to mention, but I'll come back to that in a second. But how I got to know Craig and how I got to read The Ghost of Altona was 
he won the Bloody Scotland Book of the Year prize the year after I was shortlisted for it with the Ghost of Altona. And my local Waterstones, either in an act of genius or an act of utter cruelty and sadism, said to me after he'd won, Neil, you didn't win in 2014. Craig did win in 2015. Would you like to interview him in the store? <laughs> oh, thanks very much. Brilliant. So I said, right, okay, I'll do it, but I better read this book. So I got the Ghosts of Altona. I was like, right, okay, let's see what this boy's got to say. Flicked open the first couple of pages. I thought, that's all right. Went a bit further. Oh, God. Got about a third of the way in and went, oh, this boy showed me I've just been paddling in the shallow end. And that was it, because it's just, it's a, again, it's, it's like Laidlaw in the fact that it masquerades as a detective story, but it's not. It's a gothic horror. It's a suspense novel. It's a psychological drama. It's a meditation on life and existence. And it's just a brilliant novel. And to read it for, from the point of view of the characterization, for the suspense, for the pacing, for the, the moments of real horror that are in it, and for the ending, which is just brilliant. It's a book that if you're interested in aspiring to be a crime writer or a good writer, go and read Craig's work. One other book of his that I would like to mention is a book that it never really got much attention. It's a book called either The Third Testament or Biblical, depending on when you get it. And it's more a speculative fiction thing than a crime novel. But in it, there's a scene where a woman has dementia and it starts with her correcting a metal picture frame. Then she goes round, and by the time she comes back to it, she's forgotten she's correct, then she corrects it again. And in that chapter, you have dementia. Craig's writing is that good, it gives you dementia. And it is the only thing I have ever written. And then just closed the book and walked away and gone, right, I need to get some fresh air. And that's how good his writing is. Um, and Craig's just a, he's a lovely, lovely man, as I say. He's been a huge supporter of my work. And his writing is just brilliant. And I think more people should be, you know, more people should know who he is and more people should be reading his work. Well, do you know when I, when he was on the podcast and as much as it was interesting getting his book choices, I felt by the end of it, it was like a masterclass for anyone who was sitting listening, including me that wants to write. I think the the advice that he was given through his own experience was yeah. brilliant. And everything he said, I kept thinking, right, well, I'm, that's a gem. And I did say to him at one point, this has just been a brilliant sort of lesson. And yeah. I, you know, class for people who want to write and it was done in a way that you just it was so engaging as well that's the thing about Craig you can sit I mean before the pandemic hit we often used to sit and have lunch or I'd go around to his house and stuff and you would sit and hours would pass and you'd just be talking and the stuff he would come because he's a hugely as you as you know he's a hugely intelligent guy but he wears it so lightly he's sitting there and another gem and something else will drop or this will drop so yeah it's a real it's a real privilege to know him and as I say, if you want to learn about how to write a, a crime novel or evoke a character or, you know, or a theme or a time even. Because I read, and it was to coincide with uh, the, the publication of Hyde, which is his book that came mm -hmm. out this year. And again, it was yep. Douglas Skelton, who I've mentioned, who, who's obviously a big fan of, of Craig's. He'd mentioned yeah. it earlier the year. And as soon as he told me what it was about, I thought, I have to read that. And it's, it's a brilliant idea taking like Robert Louis Stevenson and, and Jekyll and Hyde and just a real twist on it. And it's a book I, th I think people should read that as well. Well, I got to read the first printed manuscript pages of that when he was writing it at his house. And I had to wait a year and a half to read the rest of the book when I got my advanced proof. But I knew he was on something special when I read the first couple of chapters. 
because the the start because I'd said to him at the time at the start where it's the, the character and it's Edward Hyde and his friends with Robert Louis Stevenson and effectively he, he sets yeah. it up and Edward Hyde says to Robert Louis Stevenson, "I've got a story to tell you." And then it's you know that line you think right I need to read this. That must have killed. That would have killed me if I'd read that start. I had to wait a year and a half to find out what the story was. Yeah, it wasn't easy, but yeah. So yeah, I remember that. And you mentioned as much as as much as I am pained to say this. You mentioned Douglas Skelton. He's another one that really done good, good work with the Rebecca Conley books. And he can marry, he can bring a place. I mean, look at Thunder Bay, was, um, which was long listed for the McIlvany. Um, but Thunder Bay is another brilliant, evocative novel, but is a bit underrated. People, not enough people have read it, I think. I've asked you, obviously, that was a couple of books that you would recommend to anyone. Then we go to the, the other side of the coin, and that's a, a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And like a lot of people, to be fair, uh, you found it difficult to, to name names, uh, although you did say there's a certain international adventure that got a lot of headlines that you you load. Great story, horrendous writing. So it is a difficult one, because these things are all subjective, I suppose, aren't they? Aye, there is that. I mean, you know, there are some books that will hit you. There are some books that just aren't your taste. It's like Marmite. You'll, some people will love it, some people will hate it. But this book, I remember, great story. I remember there was a lot of hype around it, but it had the laziest, most horrible writing in it. It was There was one scene, something like, the gun fired, it hit him, he turned. And you're like, no, no, no. If somebody's shot, that's a horrifying moment. Where's the description of the sound that stops the world? Where's the shock and horror as the bullet rips into him? Where's the unstoppable force that takes him off his feet? Where are you putting me into this? Telling the story by bullet point ain't going to do it for me. And I remember that, so no, I would never go down that road again. I wonder as well, you know how that sometimes, you mentioned it when you were reading The the Ghosts of Altona, you can tell the quality right away, and as I think as a writer, then the challenge for you is, right, that's the benchmark, I need to reach that. The other side of that is, if you read something, even if it's something that's successful, and you're sitting there thinking, I know I can do better than that, that's a motivation yeah. as well, because you think, well, I, I know I'm good, or I'm better, I'm better than that, so that can be Agreed helpful as well. Again, exactly, that goes back to the Stephen King thing that you were talking about earlier on, is you need the tools of the trade. You can't write until you read a lot and write a lot. Because it's only by reading a lot that you see what works and doesn't work. And that either consciously or subconsciously will affect your writing. Because you'll read something like I've just paraphrased. You'll read that and say, right. And then you'll come to a scene with that and go, right, there's no bloody way I'm doing that. I'm going to do it this way instead. So as you say, that will shape you as a writer. In terms of your own reading, do you, are you one of these people, once you start a book, do you persevere and finish? Or, you know, if, if you're not enjoying it, do you? put it aside and pick up something else? I'll be honest. I read too many books now to stick with a book that I don't enjoy. Life's too short and I've got too many books. You know, my book, my bookshelves look very similar to yours, but not as tidy. You know, so if I'm reading a book, I'll give it its fair chance. But if I hit that handbrake moment where I'm just ejected out of the narrative, that's it. You know, there's a million other books out there. There's more books in the world than I'm ever going to be able to read. So why would I waste my time torturing myself with something that I'm just not enjoying? when I can go and pick up something else. That said, it takes a lot for me to stop a book because I feel like, you know, the guy or the girl has done the work, so I owe them that much. But if I do hit that point where I'm like, oh, no. The other thing, and some writers have said this to me, that particularly if you're writing in the midst of writing your own book, either you yeah. find you read less or 
you change what you're reading. So, for example, if you're writing a crime book, you maybe would you be reading crime novels at the same time, or are you wanting to read something completely different? I must admit, I find that when I'm when I'm in the guts of the work, my reading goes. Unless I'm doing panels at the same time, you know, unless I'm chairing a panel and I've got to read a couple of books at the same time, I will more or less taper off the writing because I don't want another writer's voice in my head when I'm trying to write the book. I want the voice to be mine. I want it to be Neil Broadfoot writing Connor Fraser or not. Neil Broadfoot, who's just read Lee Child, is writing Connor Fraser. I don't want that filter, if that makes sense. No, because I spoke to someone who was writing genre fiction, but then would read non-fiction books while they were uh, writing for that, for that same reason, effectively, is what you're saying. Yeah, that's it. I don't want somebody else's voice in my head when I'm writing my work. So I want it to be my work, not influenced by them, if that makes sense. Because you're going to get, the influences you'll get are the ones that you've been immersed in over the years. Right, exactly. And again, going back to the Stephen King thing, the stuff that you read is the stuff that shapes you as a writer, whether that be you want to be like that or you don't want to be like that. And that's fine. But when I'm in the act of drafting a book, I don't want those voices consciously in my head. Do you ever find you meet, I think everybody's probably met someone at some point, because you know there's always people who say, oh, I'd, I'd love to write a book, or I think I could write a book, and then you and then you ask them, would you like reading? And they go, I don't really read much. You think, well, I don't think you'll be writing a book. I was asked years ago to do an event with Fife College as part of the Live Literature Fund to talk to kids who are from more deprived backgrounds about writing and characterisation and all this type of stuff. And it was heartbreaking because these kids, what's the point in reading? I've not got time for that crap. What's the point in reading? I can watch it on the TV. And I was sitting, you know, holding my head in my hands because these kids have lost out on so much because of that. But if you've not, if you don't read, you've not got the access to the worlds that it can open up to you. So then you've not got the passion to go and create those worlds yourself. The other thing I was going to ask you as well, that over the last year and a half, given what's been going on in the world, in terms of writers who are publishing yeah. books, and part of it, I suppose, the joy of publishing, but also in, in terms of helping sales is book launches and book events. And I'm guessing you, the same as everybody else, is just desperate to get back in a room with readers and you can talk about your book and get that feedback. Oh, yeah, I cannot wait for that. I mean, with the four blokes, especially the four blokes in search of the plot stuff that I do with Gordon Douglas and Mark, we've done a few of them live. Sorry, we've done a few of them on Zoom. And it's great, don't get me wrong, Zoom's been brilliant for doing virtual events and first of festivals, and it's kept things going. But there's nothing quite like that instant reaction where everybody's in the same room because they love books. Everybody's having that conversation and you get a laugh or you say something or another author gives a nugget of wisdom, and that's missed. And I can't wait to get back. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. You said it's later on this year, your, your new book's coming out. So hopefully... By that point, we're going to get people in bookshops and, and events that you can actually go well, meet them. I can't wait. I really can't wait. We are on to the last of the book choices, and it's either the last book you read or the book you're currently reading. You've mentioned mm -hmm. three in the books that you, you sent me. One is from McHeron's Slough House series, and it's called Slough House. I've read the first of those books, uh, uh -huh. Slough which I just thought was brilliant. I've got, I've got about another four or five of them in the series on these bookshelves that obviously people can't see behind me, but I just love the whole premise of that, that series. They're brilliant. And the genius of Mick's writing is he's got this dry humour and Jackson Lamb's just a, an inspired creation of a character. 
And, you know, Mick's got this wonderful blend of he's got really clever plots, but he's got really, he's nailed the characterization of the slow horses. This, I could hear Jackson Lamb in my head describing them in four-letter words that I'm not going to. And uh, Roddy Ho, I don't know whether you've, have you met Roddy Ho in the first one? I can't remember, but he's another work of genius because Roddy Ho's a hacker, the coolest guy in school to Roddy Ho. To everyone else, he's a complete geek user, but when Mick writes Roddy and the Rodster being super cool and ice cool and all this stuff, it's just genius stuff. And if you want to just, if you want to lose yourself in good storytelling that will make you laugh out loud, that has a really good, intricate, current plot that discusses current issues there, go and pick yourself up a Mick Heron book. Because I don't know if those books, I never even checked to see if those books have MDs optioned them as films or a TV series, because it, to me, as I say, I've only read Slow Horses. It really lends itself to that, I think. I think they have. Did I read something? I'm sure Apple TV's got them or somebody's got them. I'm sure I read something about them being optioned, unless I'm thinking about something else. But no, I'm sure they've been optioned. Yeah, I'd be amazed if they hadn't. Because that first one where he, he does bring in all the different characters, and that was probably maybe the trickiest one to introduce everybody. But it's just, I just thought it was a brilliant idea. It is an idea and it's flawlessly executed. One of the other books you mentioned, and again, it's a, I think it's a, a part of a series of books that, that Derek Farrell has written, and this one is, is it Death at Duke's Hall? Yes. I'm guessing, is this part of the Danny Bird series? Death at Duke's Hall. It is indeed. Um, I met Derek years ago, and he was nice enough to let me see Death at Duke's Hall, which is, I think it's the fifth Danny Bird mystery. The protagonist is Danny Bird, who is a... Uh, bartender or sorry runs a bar in london and he just so happens to be gay and that's completely incidental to anything else but he's got this wonderful supporting cast brilliant characters as i was screaming one liner better than anybody you would know and really intricate clever plots obviously i've read it because i've managed to get an advanced copy of it and that's going to be another great one is that one of the i don't know if privilege is the right word but one of the the lucky side effects of being a writer that, that sometimes you get advanced copies so before the rest of us get to enjoy the books that you've already you know what's coming ahead and you've got yeah. you've got to read these hidden gems oh without a doubt there is that I mean I am in a very fortunate position that proofs dropped through my door I mean we were talking about Douglas his one I can't remember the title of it now A Rattle of Bones I think which is out in August yeah A Rattle of Bones that's it that came through the door the other day I got Denzel Merrick's latest couple of months before it came out I managed to get a proof of not Slough House but the one before that from Mick you know and I've, I've had stuff from Chris Doug Johnson Angel Clark Ed James whoever it might be so I am very lucky and that's one of the nice things about being published is your publisher does send you advanced proofs to look at so that's yeah. a, a real pleasure and a privilege as well and the other book you mentioned which is and I think we kind of not didn't quite mention the actual book but I think the book you mentioned was Ian Rankin's Black and Blue, and I think it's the, that was the eighth in the series. And I'm not sure if that was the one, you know, you mentioned it was, it was a yeah. bit kind of everything clicked into place, and then there's this back catalogue that everybody then goes, I'm not sure if that was yeah. the one that, that did it for them. I'm pretty sure it was. The reason I'm re- reading that again is I just, I found it on my bookshelf. It's as simple as that. You know, I found that I was tidying something up and I found it and I haven't read it in a while. And I picked it up, read the first couple of pages and thought, yeah, I'm going to reread this. It's just one of those, Ian's a great writer and he can evoke, he's got that sparseness of phrase 
that you know a couple of lines and bang, he's got Edinburgh summed up perfectly, or he's you know judged Rebus's mood there. So it's nice just to go back and see after reading what was the latest one called again, the one that was just out in a House of Lies. After reading the older Rebus, going back and reading the younger Rebus is quite an education at the moment. So it's nice to go back and you know see him again as a younger man. Do you do a lot of reading? Not a lot. I mean, I've got a few favourites that I will always go back to. We were talking about Jekyll and Hyde. I'll read that once a year, without a doubt. I'll go back to Arthur Conan Doyle anytime, day or night. You know, if it's there, if I happen across it, or if I'm looking for a short read for a, well, back in the day when we did train journeys and stuff. They used to have those Penguin classics, the thin ones, the short stories. So I'd pick them up and I'll reread them. I've got favourites that I will go back and read. But generally, as I said to you before, because I've got so many books coming in and because I've got so much to read, I don't do a lot of rereading, so it has to be an exceptionally good book for me to go back and reread. And when we were talking earlier on about that, the kind of generosity of the Scottish crime community, I've never met Ian, but it always strikes me as being unfailingly helpful and generous with his time and advice. Anytime I see any interaction he has on yeah. social media I just think that's so impressive for somebody who's been so successful Agreed completely We are Neil sadly almost out of time for the podcast we mentioned you know right at the start we've talked about it the fact that you are getting closer to book number number seven and is this the point you're just this just the final we push in terms of the edits before it, it gets signed off and then you can start thinking of the next one I'm already thinking of the next one, but yeah, um, I've got what's called line edits coming back through. Basically, I've done all the structural edits and my editor, the commissioning editor, has said, the story works, I'm happy with it, I've signed it off. And then it goes to a line editor, which is basically, a, exactly as it says in the tin, it's a line-by-line line edit to check that all the grammar, the punctuation, et cetera, et cetera, is right. Because I've been through the book X amount of times by now, but the problem you have is when you're reading 100,000 words that you've written again and again and again, you go copy blink. So it's always handy to get someone else to look at it, to pick out the little mistakes that you might have missed when you've been going through. And just to make doubly sure that somebody you killed in chapter six doesn't turn up in chapter 15. So yeah, I'm just waiting for them to come back through and then I'll go through them and then we're all set for November. It's funny, I think people who have never written a book, but also people I think that haven't worked in newspapers and then they'll maybe read something and they'll spot a mistake and they'll say, I don't understand why somebody couldn't have spotted that. But as you say, if you've written and then have read and reread and reread and reread 100,000 words, you're uh, never going to pick everything. That's why you need fresh eyes. That's exactly it. And that's part of the beauty and the value of the editing process is you need, once you've done something that you've been back and forth and through with a million times, it's always good to go back and then give it to someone else. And I think you mentioned the book's coming out. Is it November? What, what's it called again? Uh, no Quarter Given. So No Quarter Given. I think all people need to know is that it's coming out in November and it'll be the perfect gift for Christmas. Uh, but listen, Neil, thanks very much for joining me on the Read All About the podcast. I've really enjoyed uh, having a chat to you about your, your favourite books and all about also about your own books. Thank you. It's been great for your time. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. 
If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.